hello and welcome to the Centralized Justice Broadcast. My name is Federico Asta. I am CEO at Cleros. Thank you for joining us. My co-host is Damian Malvasic. How are you today, Damian? It is a good day here in Sremska Mitrovica, Serbia, and I have to say that I'm incredibly happy to have the opportunity of welcoming our dear guest and dear friend, Santi. Yeah, uh, our guest, Santi, Santiago City, well, he's a person I greatly admire and uh, who was very inspiring for me to, to do the work I am doing today in decentralized justice. Uh, so I'm very, very happy he's here uh, with us. And hello, Santi, how are you? Hello, Fede. Hello, Damian. Uh, you are both uh, very dear friends of mine. It's always a pleasure to to hang out with you guys. I miss hanging out like we did on DevCon in Prague some years ago and talking philosophy and politics, but I'm glad that at least we get this chance to do this podcast together. Absolutely. So let me let me tell you uh, a bit about Santi. So Santiago City was born in Buenos Aires. He started his career in the Argentinian gaming industry. Uh, he created a, a, a very nice game called Football Deluxe. And, and then he went on to create Popego, that was a firm doing big data based on social media analysis. Uh, and then he started doing work on politics. Uh, in, 12, in 2012, he founded the Partido de la Red, the Net Party in Argentina, a political movement to promote citizen engagement through the use of technology and open source software. Uh, two years later, he founded the Democracy Earth Foundation, a nonprofit that uh, develops governance infrastructure for crypto networks. Uh, he's also a, a writer. He authored the book Hacktivism, uh, where he tells about all the, his story in, in the world of uh, online uh, activism. And because of his involvement with innovation and, and high and high tech, uh, some have dubbed him the Steve Jobs of the Pampas. But <laughs> 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 you know, uh, this is the second time I, I interview. Uh, uh, Santi, I, the first time, like actually the day I think we met was I, because I, I interviewed him for a Argentinian newspaper. Uh, I, I, long, I don't even want to, to think how long ago that was. And so we had this really interesting conversation that went like I need, for three hours. Uh, it was in, in his company uh, in Buenos Aires. So, well, let's get, let, let's get started. And I, the, the first question I, I have is... Um, uh, how did you become interested in, in computer science and what was your first computer, basically? Beautiful question. Uh, I think that my, my brother, who is 10 years older than me, had a Commodore 64, but uh, I guess he, he didn't uh, got hooked to it other than playing games. I was too young when the Commodore 64 was out there, so I didn't pay much attention to it when it, that machine was at home. But I remember very well one day in 1992 when my dad brought uh, home from his office an XT8086 IBM PC. Uh, this oh, is no. a first-generation personal computer. Uh, I guess in the early 90s in Argentina, we were still using IBM PCs from the early 80s. Uh, but my dad brought home that machine and that definitely captured my imagination. My initial dream was to be able to play video games, of course. I was dreaming of playing video games, and I had a football game, and I was obsessed with it. But very soon, I realized using DOS, as we used back in those days, you know, <laughs> the, the big operating system, you know, command line uh, operating system, that as you introduced uh, instructions into the computer, the computer would obey exactly what you told it to do. Um, back in, in, in school, we were having lessons about Logo Writer, which was a, a known application to teach kids about basic skills about coding, where you have to move a little turtle with simple mm. instructions. Yeah. And that early connection with ab abstraction and, and, and thinking about computers and that empowerment that I felt with programming uh, was like tasting a drug that uh, sadly or, or thankfully uh, I never left. Uh, ever since I was 9, 10 years old, um, I, I, I spent almost every day of my life in front of a computer, which is a scary statement to make now that I'm a parent. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, um, 
one of the, my, I think one of my the most beautiful days I remember from my uh, childhood was the Christmas of '93 when I got a 486 as a Christmas present, and uh, mm. and ever since it has been uh, digging even deeper in the rabbit hole of computer programming and software development and you know video games and everything you can do with this incredibly powerful creative uh, technology. A 486. I also had one. I, it was like in 1993. Was like the equivalent to quantum computing now. Oh, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Daniel. Yeah. No, no, I just wanted to say that my experience with the 486 was exactly the same. It was 1995, and my father bought a used 486 in Bratislava for some kind of a company that used to, to sell elevators brought it back to Mitrovica and that was my first experience both with the internet coupled with a 486 it was something out of this planet and then when yeah. I figured out that you can actually run Wolfenstein 3D <laughs> on that yeah. that, was a, that was a mind opener completely Wolfenstein that was, was quite a milestone in game development like realizing that 3D graphics you know were a possibility it was literally opening the universe of cyberspace in front of our very eyes those early machines absolutely incredible um, and how did you become interested in like um, like you being a developer and, and, and in, in the space of gaming basically well I had a friend in school uh you know, in the fourth grade, fifth grade, a friend that, you know, we haven't seen each other since the seventh grade. And then we reconnected thanks to those miracles of social media after 20 years. Uh, and I, you know, as an adult, now I realize how big of an influence he was in my life. And probably I wasn't on him, you know, we, or, or, or life split apart in the seventh grade, but he's now an, a top engineer at Google and, you know, makes plenty of sense to me, but he's the one that, kind of influenced me like, hey, check out, there's this stuff called BASIC. And you just, uh, it's much better than Logo Writer. And you can start uh, creating programs that can compute weird shit. And there's this stuff called Visual BASIC, which you can use on Windows. Back then it was still Windows 3.1. This is pre-95. And you just, uh, you know, you use Visual BASIC and you can create interfaces. And you can create a put a button here and then you program what the button will show on screen when you click on it. And you just learn and start um, learning the basic ropes of interface building, of uh, computer programming, of creating the logic. And, uh, you know, my dream, my frustration in life is not becoming... Uh, actually, I didn't want to become a professional footballer, but I, I always wanted to be a professional... As every Argentinian, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Argentinian cliche, Argentinian cliche. I always wanted to be a professional football coach. I never cared so much for being Maradona, but uh, I'd rather be, you know, the coach creating the team, creating the strategy. And I was very much into this game called PC Football, uh, which was a, a hit in Argentina that was a management game where you manage a soccer team and you just pick the players, define the tactic and just go out and play different tournaments. And I figured, wow, you, I could create my own version of this game Uh, with Visual Basic, uh, why not? You know, how long would it take? And as I created that project in my mind, without realizing it, I was going into a path that will teach me about databases, that will teach me about uh, management of data, that will teach me about building interfaces, about communicating clearly of those interfaces, about creating a website, communicating on a well. While all of this was happening, my life was also being influenced by the access to fiber optics for the first time, to the access of the internet, you know, the, the boom of the dot-com era. I was a teenager during those years. I, I always tell the story that when I was on the seventh grade or entering high school at 13, 12 years old, I was the only guy or the first guy in my classroom to have internet, broadband internet access. By the end of high school, all of the and my entire class had internet broadband access, and most of the flirting with girls happened over chats on, on the internet. <laughs> so that transformation of society, I, I really witnessed it uh, firsthand 
as a young nerdy student uh, in high school in Argentina. And, and ever since, to predict a little bit about the future has become somewhat of an easy thing because you are constantly exposed to new technology and, and you realize when stuff like Bitcoin or Ethereum emerges and you know it's still an early thing of a few crazy loonies that are into this weird stuff, but you just know that eventually this stuff will take over the world. And uh, my life has been a consistent uh, pattern of, of witnessing these waves uh, throughout the last 25 years, ever since I got hooked with computers. And um, it, it wasn't bad, you know, I, I learned a lot. <laughs> mm, indeed. You know, I, I kind of have, have a follow-up question here that's kind of a combination of two things. You know, the, you sort of derived a lot of things from gaming. And I feel that so th that I had a similar feeling growing up, you know, for me, games have not just taught me about basic logic and, you know, decision-making and the process of decision-making, looking at it from my side as a social scientist, but it also taught me a lot about, you know, it taught me a lot about practical justice. It taught me about, what what is it, especially role playing games? You know, what are the decisions to be made, and what are the consequences to decisions? And I, I guess that you know, combined with this kind of novelty, it's not just a novelty; it's truly a revolutionary technology with the, the advancement of computer science and, and and computer engineering. You know, my my question to you would be: um, when when was the moment that you figured out that blockchain as a technology? How, how did you get to the idea of blockchain? And also, as a second question. Um, where does your interest in politics lie? Where does that come from? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll start with the second one, uh, and, I'll, and I'll dive into the first one. Uh, I, I guess interesting politics is something that, when you look back into your own life, is deeply ingrained in 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 some I don't know uh, life experiences or influence from your own parents. In this, in my case, my mother. Uh, you know. When uh, <laughs> I'm going to go into a bit of a psychological route, but when I was in the first grade, I was six years old, and my mom left for a one-month trip to the Soviet Union back then, before the Soviet Union fell. This is 1990. That, that was dangerous, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Super dangerous, man. The Soviet Union was falling apart. My mother was more into it, not because of uh, communism, but actually because of Russian culture, you know, from mm. Tchaikovsky to to Dostoevsky and everything in between. And she was uh, interested in that stuff of Russian culture. But when she came back, first of all, it was painful for me to miss my mom for a month, you know, because I was six years old. And, you know, I guess I, I was uh, a bit jealous that I didn't get to have her. Uh, but she brought me a present. And, that, and one of the presents she brought me was a huge flag of the Soviet Union, a huge red flag. And... Uh, my father thought that was a stupid idea because he did not agree with the... Are you guys there? Yeah, yeah, I'm here. I think oh, sorry. <laughs> because... sorry, no problem. Uh, because he did not agree ideologically with his uh, six-year-old son having a flag of the Soviet Union. But I, I always thought, hmm, my mom brought me this, you know, uh, what, what does this mean? So as I grew up into a teenager and you are just a rebel that wants to go against everyone and everything, uh, when I was probably 15, 16 years old, I, I searched back into my stuff and found back that Russian Soviet flag. And I started uh, reading about the Soviet revolution, about uh, the idealism in some of those ideas, about Karl Marx, the, reading for the first time the Communist Manifesto and figuring oh shit, I've been living uh, a, a lie my whole life, you know, typical cliche of a teenager that discovers hmm. uh, the Communist Manifesto for the first time. And uh, I remember reading a biography of Che Guevara, which is a very uh, famous Argentine that, uh, you know, put everything apart uh, for this ideal cause of a global revolution. And he just went through Latin America, ended up in Cuba, and liberated a country against the United States. And of course, I thought that was a fascinating figure, you know, like a fascinating, like, 
what what does it take to have this kind of idealism put everything aside and just die for this cause and fight you know for a fair and better world whether you know now in 2020 of course we can disagree with a lot of things about that uh, and I certainly know I do but uh, that that uh, influence was very strong and put in me like uh, like some aspirations I guess on whether it would make sense to 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 explore the world in poli- a life in politics or not my father was a smart guy uh, he's definitely not a communist uh, quite the contrary and an, an anarcho capitalist uh, according to his own words <laughs> he said so you like uh, che guevara and cuba no problem i will i will buy you a ticket it's my gift for you go to cuba i have a friend of mine he is actually a marxist you can go with him and he will show you cuba uh, like as it really is and you, you just make your own mind you know i i won't tell you what to think about it so when I was 19, uh, I actually did this trip with a friend of my father to La Habana, Cuba, and I spent a whole month there. Uh, and I remember while being there in Cuba, uh, the first day I arrived to this uh, home uh, of a guy living in the, in, the, in the home of a former fighter of the revolution who was dying of cancer and was a depressed old man, but his whole family was living there with him because everyone lives in almost the same space. And among his family, there was a teenager just like me who had, uh, mm. was also into computing, was also into software and stuff. He had a, I remember he had a Windows PC and he had a little dog. And I asked him, hey, what's the name of your dog? The name of my dog is Linux. Linux? <laughs> the operating system. Yes, like the operating system. Mm. And to me, that was a shocker because I realized, you know, this guy is exactly like me, uh, dreaming of uh, accessing the Internet. For him, he was only able to access the Internet 15 hours a day. Uh, Sorry, 15 hours a month, you know, where where, where I came from a country where we had broadband access and we had plenty of freedom to access any website. He was not able to access a lot of websites. And that was confronting a big wall for me, suddenly realizing, holy shit, the, the utopia has suddenly became a dystopia. And spending time in Cuba was spending time in a, in a nightmare. The more I, I recently rediscovered my diaries of that trip, and uh, I initially it was full of idealism, and by the end it was all about the arguments that I was constantly having with my father's friend, who was trying to argue me in favor of censorship, whereas I was telling him, you know, how can you defend censorship and freedom of, and lack of freedom of thought and the fact that the only American author published in Cuba is Noam Chomsky and no one else. And, you know, I, I believe in, in the freedom of ideas. I believe in... And I, uh, it's incredible how in, my, in that diary I suddenly, you know, all I wanted to see after 20 days in Cuba was... Just, I, I don't know, an advertisement of shampoo in the streets mm-hmm. rather than an advertisement of Fidel Castro. So that broke my heart about uh, idealism and utopias. Got back to Buenos Aires. I became a capitalist. I started trading stock in Wall Street, you know, and, and going through the Gordon Gecko route for a little while. I just, you know, fuck this shit. Let's make money. Uh, of course, I made money and I lost money. Uh, and throughout the years, I guess that spark of idealism died out a little bit in me. I became more of an entrepreneur and looked more up into, che, into Steve Jobs rather than Che Guevara. Um, but uh, I guess when, when I was 28, 29 years old, I got invited for the first time to the World Economic Forum that was my first time, you know, being surrounded by chief of heads of state and, and, and you know, uh, politicians from around the world and activists like my, myself from around the world. And that re-encounter with the world of politics now from the view of an adult uh, reconnected me with, uh, with that idealism from my teenage years. And, uh, and that's, that's when I, you know, I decided, well, okay, I'll be an entrepreneur, but... I won't do a startup, I will do a political party. And that got me to Partido de la Red. And Partido de la Red was something that 
started happening in 2012, 2013, alongside mm. the, the years where uh, an idea like Bitcoin and the Satoshi Nakamoto's paper was emerging and, and reaching you know, widespread adoption uh, in a country like Argentina where we had a lot of uh, stressful issues with our own currency and suddenly technology is no longer a uh, Technology is no longer just something you consume. Technology becomes something you you can build a society with. You can start becoming an activist with it. It's a weapon. You know, technology becomes weaponized. And uh, I became a Bitcoin preacher very early on. I spoke about Bitcoin everywhere I could. Uh, I think I contributed uh, a little bit to the adoption of Bitcoin in Argentina. And... Um, and uh, you know, let's let's go back to to today. You know, to 2020. Today, one of the you know the other day was a bit nostalgic because I miss uh, the hackathons and the Ethereum meetings and the ETH whatever. You know, where we all guys like us hang out and talk philosophy and explore mm-hmm. ideas and and code uh, innovations in a hackathon for 48 hours and we don't sleep and. You know, we were guys like, we love what we do. We love, we know why, why we are doing it. We know, you know, we dream about this technology helping improve the, 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 the status, the, the state of affairs around the world. And uh, there were some, there were a few events in my life where I entered a room and I realized that everyone in that room was like a, a brother to me, like uh, someone that i known for a long time or that I really wanted to be friends with. It happened to me when I started my career in game development and I met a lot of fellow game developers in Argentina that we were trying to create a game development industry in my country. And it happened to me when I went to my first DevCon. Mm-hmm. Uh, DevCon 4 was the first one I went in Prague. Uh, it was a bear market, so there was not uh, people talking about Lambos and bullshit like that, which probably would scare me away. But there was a lot of folks right, really talking deeply about the political nature of blockchains and this technology. And I felt that the Ethereum crowd, unlike the Bitcoin crowd, I must say, which I also know very well, but the Ethereum crowd struck, struck a chord in me uh, that I figured, wow, this is this is my, my tribe. This is these people have my values, are, are idealistic. Sure, some on, uh, are on it for the money, but there's also a lot of them that are on it for, you know, build, building a better world, you know, a better justice system, a better uh, governance systems, mm. uh, replacing politicians with tools that empower people. So uh, ever since, since then, I, I, I really really got it deep into the Ethereum community, the technology. I learned a lot about it in the process. I st- I'm still learning. And, you know, going into the ideal blockchain protocol, mm-hmm. who knows, right? Now we're finding, again, the limits of ETH1, you know, with the gas prices, you know, reaching out uh, their limit. And those are, are happy, painful, you know, growing pains. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the interesting thing is that at least Ethereum is willing to take a drastically different route than Bitcoin did in 2017. Bitcoin during 17 uh, figured that there are some things that will not compromise, like the size of blocks, which makes sense, and that it won't change the consensus algorithm for anything that isn't proof of work. So the only way out was to build something like Lightning Network and payment channels and figure that scalability will come through that route. Now it's 2020, Lightning Network has gone nowhere. It's very complex mm. to use for the average user. And Bitcoin is kind of stuck on, on, on the digital gold narrative, which is not a thing bad in itself, but kind of really shows that the limits of Bitcoin are here to stay. Mm-hmm. Whereas Ethereum is willing to take a drastically different route. It's facing the same problems Bitcoin faced in 2017, high fees, but uh, at least the path forward of proof of stake, sharding, uh, uh, are, are drastically different approaches than the ones that Bitcoin had. And that open-mindedness of the Ethereum community of willing to go there together 
uh, I think it's great leadership and, uh, and, 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 and a great path forward that it's not the same path that Bitcoin explored in these past three years. So will if to give us an ideal blockchain? You know, we have the hedges out there like Tesos or Cosmos or Polkadot, which are alternatives trying to waiting for, for Ethereum to fail and capture some of the value in it. But uh, I think there's tremendous value in not only the hardware and the software, but also the community. The community means, I think it's the, the, the number one thing for me. Um, and the, the, the fact that we are all building in parallel different experiments, and then we find the way our experiments can connect with each other. And uh, I'm hopeful that, you know, our legion, our army of Ethereans triumphs in the in the in the new decade that is dawning in front of us i think the 20s will be definitely a defining decade of this century and this is the technology to to make it happen so um i don't know i hope uh, i hope we're in the right boat guys so that this is really interesting uh, let me ask a question about this because this is something we we deal uh, with at claros all the time like Um, like the scalability of blockchains, of course, it's a problem for lots of use cases. And uh, and the, the thing is that it's the, the, this is a political process, you know, of making changes, uh, as you were mentioning, because it's not that um, you are like a you know, traditional startup. Okay, you have this problem of scalability. Okay, you put a team and you build new software to solve to solve it. Now you have to speak with people. And you have to, to, to convince them that this is the right thing to do. And, and you have to discuss the, the trade-offs. Um, in the Bitcoin world, there was that famous um, post by Mike Hearns. I remember that he was saying that, yeah, the Bitcoin failed to scale because of bad governance in the, in the Bitcoin foundation at the moment. And this is connected to, to the rise of, of um, a new figure, I'd say, of a new type of politician that is the platform politician, uh, someone who who is um, like doing the, the work of a politician, but in blockchains. So um, I'd like you, Santi, to comment a bit on that. Um, I, I find it fascinating, actually, that I guess, you know, The, the parliament, you know, the concept of parliament is a place where people, it comes from the, the word uh, parlar or parlare, you know, I, I'm not a specialist in Latin, but I'm pretty sure because I know Spanish comes from mm -hmm. talking, parlar, yeah. you know, uh, speak. And uh, I guess the digital parliament <laughs> in many ways today, at least, It, although it's soft power and not uh, real power, is probably crypto Twitter. Uh, the fact how, you know, maybe it was ready during the first years, maybe it was Bitcoin talk initially when Bitcoin was emerging. But today a lot of the conversation happens on crypto Twitter and, and, and people share threads of thoughts and uh, different arguments about uh, each aspect of the different technologies that are competing with each other. There are clearly clans defined there, like the maximalists that adhere to Austrian economics and uh, fetishize uh, Bitcoin. And there's uh, the Ethereans that, uh, you know, are trying to innovate and build uh, technology using smart contracts. We have all of these competing philosophies. And, you know, this, this, these are the new imagined communities. Uh, there's this concept of Benedict Anderson, mm. Mm. Uh, okay, who argued that the, the rise of the nation state is a consequence of the information technology of the press, of the printing press, where for the first time Italians started reading in Italian, Spanish started reading in Spanish, the British started reading in English, and this gave rise to these constellations of society that are no longer influenced by central power of Latin, but started building the concept, the modern concept of the nation state. Today, these, these imagined communities are probably no longer limited by regions, by geography, and by language. Uh, it's limited by our understanding of reality through ideology and crypto-economic ideology, through the ideology of these consensus mechanisms, through what's good software, what's good open source or free software, you know. Um, and the, 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 the protocol politician 
uh, is an emergent figure uh, that is influencing with his or her speech uh, through these new channels of communication where we actually hang out every day, especially mm. now in the, in the pandemic with COVID. Uh, as I deeply miss, you know, meeting in the real world, in, you know, in, in meet space. Uh, to me, Twitter, if I didn't have something like Twitter where I could chat with guys like you on a daily basis, it would be very frustrating. And, and I think that the, today I, I do pay attention, more attention to the influencing voices of crypto, uh, even the voices I disagree with, even the voices that have <laughs> blocked me, <laughs> uh, especially when they block me. I think it's a very powerful signal. You know, uh, I am blocked by very, a lot of prominent maximalists, which uh, of course, it's a bit painful, but at the same time, it's like, okay, I know that I'm not not that, uh, and probably they are not what I am, you know, but mm. it's, it's at least a signal of, of um, the commitment we have to our ideas. And, uh, you know, for example, when a guy like Andreas mm. Antonopoulos raises his voice about an issue like uh, supply gate, you know, mm. I think it's a very powerful voice because he definitely influences everyone in the space about, well, what's the relevance of the supply of a coin and what does it mean for its economics and why Ethereum is a bit more complex than Bitcoin and how it spawns all these, these different views out of this simple uh, little thing in the code, right? Mm. And, um now that some of that power is trying to reach formal capacity with the governance of the different DAOs, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing with, with DeFi, there's interesting experiments in governance happening, still most of them token voting and, and whatnot. But uh, it, what I like about Ethereum is that it's the only project out there that is very advanced in its current conversation about game theory, decidability, and the problem of governance. And I hope that, you know, very soon from now, we'll transition from, you know, the average experience we have on Twitter where our voting is mostly a retweet and amplifying someone else's voice to effectively voting and influencing protocols in more ways than just plutocracy. Uh, that's why, you know, I'm, a, I'm the guy from Democracy Earth, so I guess mm -hmm. I have my commitment is to figure out democracy in these networks. But... Uh, but I think you know we have a long way, a long way ahead, and, and, and I'm sure that this this figure of the protocol politician, I find it more important in my daily diet of news than the than the let's call it the the legacy politician, you mm. know, the mm. lying from the promising politician, the politicians that like to promise things that cannot deliver. Protocol politicians promise things that ultimately are accountable by code, hard, cold code, you know, hmm. uh, whereas uh, the promising politician is just words. One thing that I wanted to sort of touch upon, because you were mentioning Anderson, and I, I have studied him intimately, one of the things in the imagined communities, one of the biggest criticisms of, of Anderson's thesis about imagined communities is that nation states, no matter how they were developing and, and you know, discovering their own local languages and local culture and these things, uh, the 20th century and the 21st century has taught us that, that these communities are much more organic rather than constructed in the sense that you might uh, take away elements that, you know, that Anderson said, you know, construct these communities and you would still have a functioning nation, not a nation state, but a functioning nation, even without certain elements. And I think that this is something that that's an even stronger uh, argument towards what you were saying, because this, this, let's say, mishmash of the people from different societies, usually highly educated, who are sitting on crypto Twitter and discussing, you know, the development of uh, protocols. At this mm. point, it it is an organic thing that is developing. And I think that that is why it's so incredibly interesting to see it develop from, from literally week to week with that, that many things happening. But I think that one yeah. element that it's lacking, and this is why, why I think that this conversation needs to go in the direction of, 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 of you know, discussing precisely how democracy is built on the blockchain 
And what are the theoretical ideas at this point that we have towards establishing some kind of a democratic democratic consensus about certain mm-hmm. things is that it is lacking still, at least from my perspective, because I look at it from a bit of a you know different angle, given that I am in the tech now, like, you know, just just uh, starting to comprehend the the deeper inner inner workings of, of blockchain technology. Uh, but no social science really well. One of the things that I'm observing is that it's still lacking a sort of a human touch. Something mm. where you can actually see, and this is normal, the, the protocols are still at, at their early stage. Everything is sort of an experiment. So what is that element that it's lacking, I think, is, is, is the human touch, is actually the application that can relate to the society at large, especially the global society of the Internet. It's still something that is just within our thoughts. And, of course, we're, we're working on that. I definitely agree that we are so far away from understanding how humans are formalized in these type of networks. Um, you know, you guys know very well that we recently, I recently co-authored a paper uh, coming from Democracy Earth, uh, also with Paula Berman and, uh, uh, and Divya, Divya from Radical Exchange and, um, and uh, Sergei Ibriev from my, uh, his connected a little bit, I guess, to the IDENA Network project, where we explored, at least I think what helps us as, as we're so early into this problem, and it's such a big problem, you know, humans humans on the blockchain is has a lot of threats, you know, you have to really understand the threat model of the risks of putting identity on a chain where eventually that information can be, you know, we have to learn from the experience of what happened with the web mm. protocol and Facebook. Mm. And uh, but at least we're trying to identify some concepts that will help us, you know, find a common ground, a common language where we can build together. Uh, and the, the idea of proof of personhood in, as an analog to proof of work and proof of stake, achieving proof of personhood um, is, is, I think we're in a process still where we need to identify the constraints, you know, the, the, what definitely does not need to happen and how could mm-hmm. potentially happen. Uh, Kleros is doing an extraordinary job advancing in that direction, putting its protocol at the service of authenticating humans that are vouching for each other and creating a web of trust with the Kleros uh, mechanism. Um, then there's the, the, the Turing test approach, which uh, the IDINA network is doing, which is a very original mm-hmm. approach. Uh, and one of the challenges of, of why humans are not here just yet is because after Cambridge Analytica, which is not a thing of the 2016 election, by the way, it's also a thing of the 2008 election when where one of the Facebook co-founders uh, managed Obama's uh, entire social media strategy, mm-hmm. and that was the main ingredient for getting Obama elected back in 2008. But when the bad guy wins for the media establishment, at least, in 2016, uh, Cambridge Analytica puts at the center of the political conversation the influence of the internet and and centralize the centralized architecture of client-server mm. applications. Mm. The web gave us client-server architecture, and the client-server architecture, regardless of the type of application you create, is a recipe mm. for surveillance. There's no way that you will not end up in a surveillance uh, endgame if you create something with a client-server architecture. And now... Uh, this is a fascinating thing for me because I've been reading about how to create decentralized apps for, for many years already. And now the, there's some maturity to some of the tools we can use to create decentralized infrastructure for real that is uh, completely different than the client-server architecture. So we have the interplanetary file system, IPFS, to host information in a decentralized way. We have... Uh, better protocols to structure data from the blockchain, like uh, the graph, which is an interesting protocol that structures the information out of every smart contract that is getting some action out there, and it helps developers all begin working with structured data rather than create, creating a server that needs to structure that data and eventually you know, do the heavy lifting themselves. Uh, and there's obviously, you know, what you can do on chain and the logic that you can put on, on the blockchain to allow for executing applications without needing the user to download or to connect mm. with a server at all. Uh, 
So as this new architecture is emerging out of the internet, it's like almost like a biological mutation of it. Uh, we need to understand if we're going to do humans, how we do not end up with the same mistakes that led uh, to the Google and Facebook outcome. Hmm. And uh, there are very difficult constraints to that right now. One of them is the very second you have a human disclosing even one bit about his personal information, whether that bit is a, is a name, a surname, a username, a phone number, an email address, whatever that is, that is the, the second that data is out there, it's out there for anyone to see. And that uh, already poses a risk of replicating uh, Facebook all over again. And it's a very tough constraint to work with uh, because it means, it means that when we think about identity, we might even need to think identity under a lens that won't even allow us to think about ourselves as uh, we have been trained to think mm. our whole life. You know, I think about myself as Santiago City from Argentina, 36 years old, and, you know, identifying with those discrete labels, Santiago City, you know, name, surname, or my, where my family and blood comes from, those discrete labels uh, might risk my privacy in cyberspace because cyberspace uh, really loves discrete labels that can use to to manipulate you or to survey, subvert, you know, to, to track you and to follow you. Mm. Uh, so uh, one, one of the approaches that uh, at Democracy Earth we've been thinking is, well, what if identity, rather than being a discrete, mm. is a probability? And you just, because on blockchain you can use multiple addresses, create, generating an address in your wallet, it's just one click. And you can have hundreds of the predeterministic addresses out of a single wallet, if not thousands. And you just use different addresses for different protocols because you want you are in control of your privacy. Mm. Uh, but ultimately, you need to signal, you know, a system for voting does not need to know who you are. It only needs to know you haven't voted twice. Mm. Mm. So there's something Edward Snowden that really influenced me. He said this last year at Web3. Uh, identity is the one vulnerability being exploited across all systems and uh, we need to differentiate between verifying an identity and verifying the right mm. to use a technology mm. and all of this subtle uh, all of this nuance on how we deal with identity are very important because they are so important that almost philosophically push us to start thinking about ourselves beyond our ourselves, you know, beyond mm. our name, beyond our labels that we have been used our whole life. And uh, of course, we need to attach ourselves to a username sometimes or to 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 an ego. Let's put it that way. But uh, but eventually, if we really want to enable privacy in cyberspace, uh, core concepts like uh, how we identify ourselves. Might, might need to be drastically disrupted, and 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 maybe that's that's a way. Maybe I, I got it completely wrong, and you know, and we're but but it's you know it's a big problem. And well, we're being we scanned without ahead. knowing mm. it, you know. <laughs> um, so you know, yeah. I always <laughs> thought about this as an evolutionary process um, that has um, kind of an analogy to what happened in the offline world in some way. Um, in, in particular, uh, with the formation of nation states, you know, before nation states, you had this feudal world of uh, fractured little kingdoms, um, yeah, little lords, and then you have the Westphalian Treaty and all that, and then you have to see like nation states consolidating. And the nation state, in some ways, is a multi-sided platform that connects people under a unified like governance uh, structure and. Um, and the way in which this happened at the beginning was through like absolute monarchy. Maybe because it was the, the efficient way to organize um, a big state because no one had organized a big state before, uh, after the Romans at least, right? So, um, and this was kind of a economic process that, that, that led to that type of governance. And you have like authors from the 18th century, like Montesquieu, that study different forms of government and how different forms of government are better suited to different structures of society and different territories and etc. 
And then you have like the American Revolution and the French Revolution. And these guys, the federalists, um, among others, trying to figure out what are the best governance tools and what is the best, we would call it now mechanism design for creating a Mm. society where the the power is balanced and all these discussions they had between, okay, should you have one president for elected for like four years or like a, a king? Or uh, how should the Congress work? So all the, the, the decisions of mechanism design that are discussed in the Federalist Papers, um, it was kind of um, the, the next step to make more horizontal the governance of this big governance structure. So I see like this, the internet going kind of a similar process. In the sense of when the internet started, we had like this little feud uh, feudal, let's call it website, <laughs> where you have like it was very disorganized. Um, there were these different little websites everywhere. I remember the GeoCities were well, I'm very old already. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then this. this kind of consolidated into big. Uh, let we can call them go uh, like uh, virtual states. You know, you have Facebook and Google that they consolidated users or subjects, if you want, into. Um, uh, same protocol, mm. which is much more efficient for interactions happening in those in those states. But of course, they have the problem of of power being concentrated because we we think of Google or Facebook as companies, but they are kind of governance structures with a king, if you want, because this is a very centralized, um, yeah, way to to manage them, which is not necessarily bad in the early stages because. Um, it, it kind of was some, and maybe this is a Marxist view of story or, or Hegelian, if you want, but it kind of it was necessary for those platforms to first emerge in order for the next discussion about governance to to start happening. And, and the blockchain, I see ourselves as kind of the federalists of the 18th century, but applied to the internet and all this work. Well, we do at Claros and mm-hmm. that you do at Democracy Earth and it's being done at Radical Exchange. All of the, the, the things that Vitalik writes about a lot, um, quadratic funding and all that. Yeah, it's kind of building the new tools for the new democracy um, of the future. And when I reflect on what was the experience at, at the moment uh, with the Net party and you, you of course you 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 were the founder and you you know you will tell me if you agree with this or not. Kind of, it doesn't really matter that much um, what happens to the like nation state governance in the end, um, right? Because we spend all the time in these new communities, right? If, if, if the nation state still mattered, I would still be trying to do the Partido de la Red. And- and to me, that was a big realization, the fact that you don't change the model from within because it's much more likely that the, that the system will change you first. And, and I saw that with Partido de la Red. I, I was tempted, very tempted to become one of them, you know, just the next you know, politician from the young generation in Argentina. I could, could have chosen that path at a certain point in life. And I chose uh, technology. Uh, and, and, the, I, I, and the main reason is because you, I think you definitely do the Buckminster Fuller thing of build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. That's mm-hmm. how technology does it. And, um, and I agree that it's a, a generational thing. Uh, I think that's a fact. Uh, you know, the people that are not, the, 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 the hardest, the people that find this the hardest are probably our, our parents or grandparents which were not born into this world. And now they struggle on how to engage with computers and it's, for the first time in generations, we have we're living in a world where mom and dad ask their son or their daughter how to do something, mm-hmm. and it was always the other way around. Mm-hmm. And now it's it's, and it's for everything now. Like uh, I help my dad for like the most basic stuff you can imagine. Uh, he's seventy five years old. Uh, you know, it com- it's completely turned upside down. You know where the the levels of power, you know, is transitioning to a new generation entirely. Uh, and I think it's probably, it's always a bit like that. You know, I was reading this morning uh, that Hamilton was uh, 21 years old, for example, stuff mm. like that. Even among the revolutionaries of their time, you know, the youth played such a big role because they're ones, they were the ones that it wasn't hard for them to imagine a different world without the British colony or without monarchy. Mm. 
And uh, I think that, you know, I look at Vitalik and I'm deeply impressed by how young he is and how, uh, and how, how intelligent and how smart his, his uh, rumiations and philosophy actually is. I think he's one of the greatest minds of our generation. I, I try to put myself in that generation, <laughs> although I'm 36. I already belong in most conferences. And, and, and I know that people respect me because I'm an old guy now, no, not because of my skills, but I will take it. Uh, but Vitalik, uh, you know, I find myself teaching people from the older generation, you know, if you really want to, if you really want to dive deep into the nature of this stuff, you know, do the effort to dive deep into the writings of Vitalik Buterin, because this is a guy that is uh, probably still the, the, the greatest influencer of the entire computing space today, unlike uh, young Mark Zuckerberg or young Steve Jobs, he didn't create uh, an American company to raise millions and become you know, one of the names in the Forbes <laughs> bullshit list. Uh, but uh, he's a guy that is, has created an entire new jurisdiction, an entire new concept of uh, coordination, an entire, you know, uh, in, uh, the infrastructure, I mean, a type of infrastructure that I would argue was an evolutionary leap. We needed the the merge of the blockchain Satoshi architecture with the Turing complete uh, Alan Turing's uh, architecture. We needed that blend. And that blend is a biological step forward. We needed a machine like Ethereum. And I think the results are now clearly evident as we see, I think we are now over 7 billion in collateral uh, feeding, you know, DeFi contracts and it's growing nonstop. And the, the, the demand is there. Um, and we are bootstrapping this whole economy around the world. And, uh, you know, this is the story to follow closely. And a guy like Vitalik, I think he also has respect, not only because he's incredibly intelligent in what he writes and his, the ideas he openly shares with the world, openly shares, uh, but also um, he, he's a good leader in the sense that his, um, his ego is really in check. Uh, he is, he's a smart, you know, mild tempered guy, very cool to hang out with, very, you know, very shy actually. And, and he's not standing on the top of a platform saying, you know, follow me, I will show you the light. Maybe he didn't disappear like Satoshi, which is the ultimate act of grandiose, uh, egoless leadership, but the tyranny of leaderlessness, I think it can be a dangerous thing. And Vitalik as a leader, I find him incredibly, incredibly inspiring. And, uh, and, you know, and that's why I'm, every day I wake up and I'm willing to, to stick with, with Ethereum and what's, what's happening with it. Mm. I think that, you know, the, you mentioned, you know, the, 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 the agency of youth throughout the ages. You know, I, I think, don't hold me to this, but I think it was Reichswehr um the standing army of, of Weimar Germany that had in one of their manuals and this is something that I think is a is a global thing. They said who are the biggest threats to the society from within, the unemployed and the high school students and students at large. They have too much time to think. <clears throat> so they come up with crazy ideas. But and I think that in this sense I guess that time has come yet again and this is where I completely agree with you to to create some kind of a system in which to put it in the in the most blunt banal terms a system in which we can find our freedom anew and mm. ethereum does seem as a space that uh, has so many moving parts at this point and the moving parts are just adding up more and more that mm. it's giving a lot of folk who are building on Ethereum, in, in especially an unprecedented level of, of creative freedom to actually try out things, test out things, fail, sometimes fail catastrophically, but at the same time, at the end, um, somehow manage to, 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 to find new solutions to old problems and novel solutions to new problems. And I think that in this sense, it's, it's, it's sort of a powerful image to think of this and sort of project it to the future, you know. 
And this is this is where I would I would actually have a question for you. You know, you're quoted as saying uh, 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 that blockchain is already impacting you know politics as as they are now. But if you think to the future, let's let's say let's let's put a little bit of foresight. You know, if it's futurism, it's over 15, 20 years. If it's foresight, it's around five to seven years. So if, if we think in the next five to seven years, especially speaking about what was our main topic today, which is governance and you know the development of democratic tools on the blockchain, especially on Ethereum, do you think and how do you envisage you know this entire space looking? for the position of governance in around seven years' time? That's, that's, a, good, that's a good time, time frame, right? The, because we could do reasonable predictions. You know, if I go back to 2013 and what would I have expected from Bitcoin uh, today, you know, I guess I, I, would have, I would have expected some of the things that did happen. So what, what could be a realistic prediction we could make now that uh, can help us describe the landscape in a world that might not be that different from now, but certainly after the pandemic, the adoption of digital technology is, is, has strengthened. And, um, you know, what, what would be the areas of disruption where this technology can take off? Certainly we are seeing now the world of finance, Wall Street and stuff like that is being taken over by the DeFi protocols that are, you know, helping to do yield farming and all of that stuff that is fashionable right now, but who knows if it will remain like that when the when the percentage of the interest rates drops to logical levels and not to levels of trying to get user adoption. Um, will it will it still be DeFi the killing use case? My hopeful self, you know, my optimistic self wishes that we begin to find non-financial use cases for the blockchain, uh, like Kleros's uh, conflict resolution approach, which I think has tremendous potential in the web as a whole, because we find a lot of things that require the kind of technology um, you guys are building. And, uh, you know, the influence of this technology in, in, in areas of power or areas of influence that are not just now, no longer simply restricted to bootstrapping the blockchain itself. Because if we look at DeFi today, it's, you know, we have credit systems, insurance systems, uh, derivatives, uh, all kinds of financial instruments, but they are all feeding into, into each other, kind of bootstrapping the, the blockchain from the inside out. Because you, when you ask for insurance, for, for a credit in DAI, it's because you need that DAI to trade it in, in you know in a in Uniswap uh, or you know you provide it in a liquidity pool or you put it in compound for for another trader to use it on uh, synthetics and it's everything still very much uh, inside the the walled garden of uh, digital assets and synthetic assets. So seven years from now, I, I hope we see more connection to the world of atoms, uh, more connection to seeing the representation in the blockchain of real estate or real land, uh, of uh, real assets uh, that uh, decide that the route for, you know, uh, uh, getting financial gears into, their, into, into these new entities, uh, they will choose the blockchain before choosing a, a bank. Uh, you know, there's are interesting experiments already happening in this direction with real estate or tokenization of uh, real goods, you know, security tokens and whatnot. Um, but I certainly hope that the spaceship that is landing, you know, the inter- like this uh, David Bowie quote, no, the internet is the spaceship, the internet is the alien. Look around, you know, the spaceship is still landing, David, if you can hear me in here. The spaceship is still landing, and the Ethereum is, is you know, an, another big part of that huge alien entity arriving on our planet, enlightening our planet. And I hope it keeps uh, landing to the point, point of touching the atoms, touching the land, and influencing the frontiers, the borders, uh, in, in, under a completely new light. You know, I think that, you know, the reason democracy earth is called that way is because ultimately I think we all share this home and we need to, I'm still, 
you know, it's hard, you know, as you grow up, it's hard to remain idealistic, but uh, I still stick to, to the John Lennon anthem of Imagine, you know, let's, let's build this home for all of us. Um, and maybe the internet can offer us the tools that we require in order to get there. And I think ultimately we need that. We need a, a better, we need this system serving humanity and not humanity mm. serving capital, uh, which is kind of the status quo today. Uh, and that's my hopeful self. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's not a minor distinction, that one. And, and you know, we that's have to keep That's a beautiful way to, to end this podcast. Uh, we, of course, we have lots of other questions, um, but we will do certainly a follow-up <laughs> of this. Um, thank you very much, Santi, uh, for, for joining us uh, today. Um, and, yeah, let me just finish with another Lennon quote. Yeah, the good thing is... Um, We are the dreamers, but the good thing is to learn that we're not the only ones and there are lots of other people dreaming with us and building this with us. Yes. So thank you very much, Santi. And this was the Decentralized Justice Podcast. And we will uh, see you in the next uh, episode. Um, goodbye. Goodbye.